Hello, my name is Akoto Olubai, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Ufanisi cast. On today's episode, we'll be talking about politics within a Pan-African perspective, but we'll be focusing on two main topics, namely terrorism within the Sahel region of West Africa and in Kenya and Somalia in East Africa. And we'll also be talking about youth participation in politics with case studies from various places within the continent. My guest for today will be Mauran from Morocco, and I let him introduce himself. Thank you, Akoto. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Marwan Al-Bahrawi. I am from the Kingdom of Morocco, and I'm a 19 years old student at the African Leadership Academy in South Africa. Okay. And we'll begin with the first topic of today on terrorism. So could we start by you defining for us what is terrorism and who is doing it and why within Africa? Yeah, uh, so yeah, just to give a definition of terrorism, I think we all know that uh, any use of violence by the state is justified and only the state is allowed to use violence. For, uh, for achieving any political political agenda. But when one, once a group uses violence to meet their political agendas without any justification from the state or any allowance by the state, uh, it's considered as a terrorist act. Namely, like, like you have said, the, the, the biggest or the major terrorist groups on the African continent can be found on the Sahel region. Uh, meaning some parts of North Africa and West Africa, uh, on East Africa, in Somalia, and like we, ha- we have witnessed the, like the emergence of ter- a terrorist group called Al-Shabaab, like a different one from the one we already know in Northern Mozambique. Uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's where terrorist groups uh, do exist. Also to add Libya since the, yeah, the start of the civil war in 2014. I think yeah, these are the main territories where terrorist, terrorist groups operate. Generally, in political science, we say that the state has a monopoly on violence such that within a country, it's only the government that can use violence legitimately in terms of like the police force or the army. So basically, terrorism is any one that is a non-state actor that's not part of the government using violence for their own political ends. We're seeing that in the 21st century, more and more terrorism is, in your view, why do people resort to terrorism and why is terrorism so effective? Okay, just just to, like, to answer the question that you have asked about the causes of terrorism on the African continent, I would like to start with the terrorism on the Sahel region. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sahel region is mainly a desert region. Uh, meaning that uh, very few economic opportunities exist in the region. And like we, we all agree that there is uh, very little eco- economic prosperity in the Sahel region. I think, yeah, that's one of the biggest or major causes for why terrorist groups exist, because there is no economic prosperity. Young people just find, find a meaning or find a purpose in joining uh, a, religious, a religious group or a terrorist, a religious terrorist group, um, because it gives them a purpose in life, because it gives them money, mainly. Uh, for example, in Morocco, I have witnessed a lot of young people that I, I knew 
that joined religious uh, terrorist groups just because of lack of, of money or lack of economic opportunities. I think, yeah, that's one, one main reason. Yeah. I think the other reason, which is uh, used by the leaders of those terrorist groups, is the ambition of creating a Muslim or Islamic caliphate, a, a state where uh, the law is governed by the Sharia law, uh, the law that is stated in the Quran. I think, yeah, that's, that's the other major, major cause of terrorism. What do you think, Akocho? Do you have other, do you think of other reasons? I'd say that economic opportunities may be half of it, but it's also maybe political ends in order to further said economic opportunities. Like in order to gain more economic opportunities, then you'll construct a political ideology in order to fuel this terrorist organization because mm. in order to tell normal rational human beings to take up arms to go shoot people to strap bombs to their body or hack into government databases and post that data online or any other number of things there has to be some aspect of brainwashing to an extent because as human beings we have what we need some form of meaning in our lives. Mm. And as human beings, we need stories and narratives in order to live out our lives. So we basically have to construct some kind of ideology. And typically in a shortcut to construct this ideology, people more or less take religion, then pervert it, then transform that into their political ideology for their terrorist group. Just, just to add to what you said, I think yeah, we have discussed like the, the economic factor. And one other thing that I would like to add is that we, we can witness terrorism exists in, in low income uh, areas or regions. Okay. Uh, for example, like when, when a terrorist group wants to recruit, or recruit more people, the first thing that they would do is to recruit uh, like the low income people uh, because they offer them first money and second, like, like we said, a purpose in life. Um, money they got from fundings from other terrorist groups, other big terrorist groups. We're talking about like ISIS and and, and those and Al Qaeda and and those terrorist groups. Like they get the funding, and with those funding, they use it for recruitment recruitment of people. Then, like we said, the face of brainwashing, such giving them an, an ideology or a doctrine that mixes both the political and religious aspects in order to give them a purpose uh, in this life. Also, I had asked why is terrorism so effective in this day and age? Effective in that I read this book earlier in the year. It's called 21 Rules for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. And in part of the book, he has a chapter dedicated to terrorism. He argues that terrorism is actually a poor strategy for achieving your political aims. But the reason terrorism is so effective is that it, first of all, it undermines the legitimacy of the state because one of the main jobs of governments is to keep their citizens safe. So if it if a terrorist group demonstrates that their government cannot keep their citizens safe, it undermines the government's legitimacy and also makes it look weak and powerless and not in control. 
then also part of why terrorism is so effective is like the media spectacle there'll be videos there'll be audio especially now that people have smartphones people who are right in the middle of all this stuff probably they'll take a video take pictures you'll see them on twitter on facebook then the media grabs them and runs with this narrative but if you look at it like objectively the state has a standing army they're well trained they have ammunition they can call on the armies of other governments to help them or any other things such that the state is more organized and more powerful than terrorist organizations yet terrorist incidents still manage to shake countries a lot yeah i i think uh you have summarized such a question about the efficiency of, of terrorist groups or the function of terrorist groups but i i would like to add few things so you have mentioned uh, the that terrorist groups try to undermine the legitimacy of the state i would like to add that in that undermining of that legitimacy they found their own legitimacy why which is which will bring me to my second point which is talking about the salafism ideology so i'm yeah i'm talking specifically about islamist um yeah i'm talking specifically about yeah i, I, will, I will get back to that word uh, you did get yeah i will i will get back to it okay so uh, i'm talking specifically about islamist terrorist groups mm-hmm. and the ideology that they follow is called salafism in arabic this ideology calls for muslims to go back to the old ways of practicing islam meaning that only the old ways of practicing islam are the right way to being a true muslim uh, yeah that that salafism is not only uh, like practiced on an individual level but also on a state level meaning that these terrorist groups do exist so that the, the whole nation follows the law of the sharia because it's the only like it's the right law it's true to 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 follow uh, on this earth and also because they believe that the lifestyle or the that style of governance that uh, caliphates muslim caliphates on the 8th century or 9th century uh, that's the right way of, of of governing people i think yeah that's one one of the other factors of why terrorist groups are efficient and talking yeah i think talking about terrorist acts we can talk about uh, the group level and we can talk about the lone wolves those are people that you like you said are brainwashed they they think that they will by doing that act they have they will achieve that meaning in life or they will achieve that perfect purpose in life and could you differentiate for us between lone wolves and then terrorist organizations yeah So yeah, terrorist organizations, like I said, have the ambition of creating a caliphate or a Muslim or an Islamist, an Islamist state. And I would go like back to the differentiation between Islamists and Muslim. So yeah, uh, this this uh, ambition of creating that that uh, caliphate is the difference between the lone wolves and and uh, terrorist groups. So the lone wolves have their own missions. and their mission is to destroy destroy the 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 western civilizations the civilizations that is because they believe that like the whole world is like is following a a conspiracy theory against muslims around the world to undermine them to destroy them to kill their lives and everything to kill their culture and their religion so what do they do they attack like like even even like muslim states who think that they don't do not follow the right way of islam like we have seen that morocco has faced attacks uh algeria has had terrorist attacks 
we can say that Somalia has even had uh, terrorist attacks. And at the same time, France, UK, and, and the US. So they're not only uh, even aiming at Western yeah. countries, yeah. Even, Any country yeah. that is not following the Sharia law is for them uh, a country that should be punished by the law of, of, of Allah. Those are the lone wolves. Yeah, just so to go back on what I said, the difference between being Islamist and being a Muslim. So a Muslim is the person who who simply follows what has been ordered to them in the Quran, like following the good deeds and not doing the bad deeds. The Islamist person is the guy who mixes both the ideology, Islamist ideology, with, with Islam as a religion. It's, it's a person who, who mixes both the politics and the religion is what gives an Islamist. They have their own ideology, they have their own ambitions, and they're not Muslims. What sustains a terrorist organization? How do they get funding? How does this money they get typically through illegal means, evade banks or money laundering, watchdogs or such things? And also, it's not just finances that sustain them. How do they get firearms then how do they keep recruiting members because if you're undertaking a violent struggle at some point people will die so how do you recruit more people how do they ensure that say they form a cohesive group such that the leadership structure doesn't break down and the group disintegrates so how does a terrorist organization then sustain itself both from a sociological perspective and a financial perspective? I think yeah, that's that's uh, a very good uh, question, uh, asking about the sustainability of, this, of these organizations. I'd like to say that most of terrorist groups or like like each terrorist group have a sub, subgroup, sub-terrorist group, a small group of, of soldiers. These groups work most of the time as mercenaries or private, private armies that other armies can, can buy or... Uh, yeah, can borrow for, for some time just for, for their for to advance their own political yeah. Hunting them out. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, they, they would gain money from, from that source. Another source is like to give examples of mercenaries, we can we can use example of the Syrian. So right after the Arab Spring, the the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad used the terrorists that were imprisoned in the in the in the in their in the Syrian prisons to use them as, as, as armies against the revolutionary Syrian people. Uh, another example is how Turkey uh, transported dozens or hundreds of terrorists from the Middle East to, to Libya to fight to fight the forces of the government of national accord, uh, or I, I've mixed them, to fight the national liberation, national liberation army. Yeah. Yeah, the main point is that they have used terrorist groups for that, for that reason, and they would gain money for that. Another uh, source of uh, income, I believe, is social media. Like you said, the videos uh, shared by terrorist groups are viewed by millions of people. Mm-hmm. And like another source of income even, also is... Or even, like yeah? pri- or even like private groups on social media like Facebook or Reddit yeah, yeah, or 4chan. Yeah, and they, have, and they have sympathizers. They have people who support them. Uh, like people from around the world who send money, who send donations and yeah, who support those, those terrorist groups. Another 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 in, uh, source of income is basically stealing like or looting what they have won the, the territories that they have won. 
for example, we can say in, in Syria, like the ISIS group in Syria, Iraq, and and uh, I believe yeah, in Syria and Iraq, the ISIS uh, the ISIS terrorist group have gained a lot of territory, uh, and even, as as a result, a lot of income. Even like yeah? in Somalia, they smuggle charcoal and oil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they have their own economic activities and yeah. like they, be, they benefit from that's how they grow. That, that's how they make sure that they keep okay. their sustainability. But you mostly addressed it from like a financial perspective, then what did you say on a sociological perspective? On a sociological perspective, I think it's, it's very clear for, for anyone who follows uh the social media or not even the social media just knowing the existence of those terrorist groups you will know their ideology and you will know like what they think what they think of their like their lifestyles and everything like there are there are thousands of movies on terrorist groups and you, as, as you can see i think that's how they can sustain their own exist uh, sociological existence but also they have intellectuals they have people who produce ideas for them they have people who lead like the intellectual life of these terrorist organizations, oh. like a certain think tank working for them. Yeah, because like if you're going to build a bomb, you more or less need someone who knows electronics and engineering. Or, exactly. Yeah. If, yeah. Yeah. If you're going to, fly, if you're planning to build a stage, yeah. If you're going to fly a plane into a tower, you need someone who's a trained pilot. Okay. Exactly. Then, and what can we see about um, how, could you then outline for us how Boko Haram started, then subsequently how Al-Shabaab started? Those, those are like the two main and most active terrorist groups in Africa. Uh, honestly, I do not have a clear timeline in my head about like the existence or like how these terrorist groups started. Mm-hmm. But I can say that like today they have been fought against by by many uh, military coalitions of african states we can say for example in 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 the Sahel region with boko haram or al-qaeda in north africa another terrorist groups they have been fought against by g5 sahel forces so the g5 i think you i believe the audience knows it those who do not it's a cool five uh, West African countries, I think Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad, and Niger. So yeah, those those five countries formed a coalition uh, to fight these terrorist groups. And they have done pretty well. I mean, I mean, yeah, they're doing good. I mean, uh, in 2020, they have killed the leader of the Al-Qaeda in North Africa, uh, who is an Algerian guy named uh, Abdelkader Drukder. And like, we should also mention how France, uh, the French military have been supporting that, that coalition, have been sending arms and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. Talking for Al-Shabaab in, yeah, you, you can talk to us about the Al-Shabaab in, okay. in, in South Africa, in Kenya, or, yeah. Okay, roughly, like a rough outline of it is that in around like the late 90s in Somalia, whereby there was a very strong and influential like group of sheiks, like sort of like what you can call now analogous to like priests in Christianity, 
who then feeling that the government was not serving the people then started their own like counter government that then morphed into the al-shabaab terrorist group then they more or less waged war against the government leading to the current instability that we see in Somalia. Then as a person who lives in a country that has faced quite a few terrorist incidents by Al-Shabaab, the latest one being in February of 2019 with the Dusit terrorist attack, where about where gunmen attacked a high-end business complex with hotels and businesses and spas and whatnot. I can say that, do I fear, live in fear of terrorism? Honestly, no. Despite living in Nairobi, the city that's the, at least the region of Kenya that has faced the most terrorist attacks, but it is scary in that there are times whereby, like in the Ducit incident, one of my relatives works there, but just so happens on that day that they weren't there. And sometimes even just like seeing on the news, like images of someone you know, someone you go to school with, like you see these things of like people being guided out by heavily armed military personnel out of that area like it's quite jarring and but i feel that in recent years the kenyan government has responded better to terrorism especially like the last one unlike there's one in garissa university in the northeast a very rural area whereby like for hours, like a couple hours after the terrorist incident started, the government failed to airlift personnel there. And yeah, the issues surrounding the logistics of that, well, actually due to corruption, it was messed up, but I'd say mostly it's the Israeli and American army helping the Kenyan government train pers- the Kenya Defense Forces on counterterrorism. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, all terrorist attacks are tragic. Uh, I mean, they cannot be, yeah, they're all tragedies. We can't avoid the consequences. But we can, what we can avoid, I think, is educating the people. So I, I think that fighting terrorism can be done on both, uh, on two, let's say, it, on two aspects or two fronts. The first front is a military front. Like with all the coalitions, like we said, the Israeli and U.S. armies uh, helping Afri- other African regimes to to tackle this issue. The other front is an educational front, like something more of an anti-radicalization campaign, something that teaches like the the young people who join these terrorist groups what's right and what's wrong. Uh, campaigns that teach them like like the true meaning of religion, like we said. The, how, how can one be religious and not tell the other to also be religious? Like, because the religion is a matter of between the individual and their God. I think yeah, those, those campaigns is, are what we need uh, in order to tackle this, this terrorist uh, issue. That's an interesting way of looking at it from these, the militaristic perspective whereby 
you have to use force, whether that's counterintelligence, seizing arms, or breaking up terror cells. Then on education, like teaching people about extremism, like also media literacy, like you may not know that you're going down a rabbit hole of gradually being indoctrinated and becoming more, holding more and more extreme views. Actually also terrorism is about a battle for the hearts and the minds of people. Then moving on, increasingly we see external influence trying to eradicate terrorism within Africa, mostly from countries like the United States, France, China, and Turkey. The U.S. mostly acts within Somalia, France mostly within the Sahel region of West Africa, which includes countries like Nigeria, Niger, Chad, and Mali. And also see China has set up a military base in Djibouti. Turkey has a military base in Somalia. So we see all these external powers wanting to counter terrorism. But personally, as an African, I am skeptical about their true intentions or even if this is effective, because we have seen the United States illegally invade Iraq in 2003 after 9-11. We have seen the United States decimate Afghanistan with no reason. Okay, I'd say without getting much, if anything, of value. We have seen also the United States and its European military, what? European military partners in the form of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We've seen them invade and decimate the North African country of Libya against the advice and wishes of the African Union. So I am skeptical about these apparent efforts of theirs. What's your view? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I somehow agree with what you said because I, I also think that terrorist groups can be used uh, for uh, strategic region, reasons. Like one, one of the examples is Libya and how uh, a terrorist, uh, like they, they used like it's uh, a this front. terrorist argument. Yeah, like I mean, yeah, they used that, this argument of destroying a terrorist group mm-hmm. uh, as, as, as a as a reason or as a pretext to invade to invade a, a country uh-huh. and like like you i do not believe that they are acting out of their love for humanity i believe that they have other reasons strategic reasons behind behind those interventions france mainly because france benefits from 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 the sahel uh, countries from mali from burkina faso from uh, niger uh-huh. and like if if terrorist groups are disturbing the economic functioning of these states or disturbing other in other aspects they need to be eradicated mm-hmm. and france is offering that 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 help and also like the us is like like it's mobilizing the army in on the african continent because it has seen that china has built a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of military bases in in east, in east africa and i think yeah they just don't want 
to see Chinese dominance over the security uh, domain or in, in, on the African continent. But yeah, I believe that terrorist groups is an issue for both Africans and European states, but it does not mean that European states should put their armies or should build, uh, build uh, military bases on the African soil just for that, for that reason. I mean, financial aid can be sent. Yes, it's welcome, thank you. Military aid also, but the presence of, of, uh, of these uh, foreigners on African soil to fight uh, terrorism can, be, can bring other consequences. So in your view, tackling terrorism in Africa should be something that African states undertake amongst themselves without any external influence? I mean, without any external influence, like you said, and also not, not very like uh, heavy external intervention. I mean, like I said, they can send financial and military resources, uh, but as long as like the, the whole military operations against these, these terrorist groups is supervised by African coalitions, such as the G5 Sahel force or other uh, coalitions that might be created Amisom. by the African Union in the future, hopefully. Yeah. Amisom in Somalia, yeah. Or oh, for the viewers who may not know, Amisom is, I'd say, a temporary standing army that has that draws its me membership from the armies of various African countries in order to combat terrorism within Somalia. For various countries to enter Somalia would be a violation of Somalia's sovereignty. So AMISOM operates in Somalia under the supervision and with the allowal of the United Nations Security Council. Uh, just yeah, just to add another thing, like of how can uh, Western countries help African countries in this in this issue is, for example, sending. Uh, we know that they have like better. Uh, security systems they have better strategies in tackling terrorist organization yes it's true and one of the ways to help is to send like african troops to uh exercise in the us or any other uh, western country that has uh, a strong uh, security system uh, for, for example uh like strategies on how to collect information or strategies on how to uh lead an operation like a military operation against a terrorist group or how to negotiate with a terrorist group holding hostages and everything like those strategies is that, that can be helped uh, that can help uh, african african nations we have like very strong uh, countries that have uh, proved strong against terrorist attacks or terrorist groups uh, like i can talk from like i'm i'm not saying this because i'm moroccan but yeah i've i've witnessed like how the moroccan system moroccan police system have been functioning against, against these terrorist groups. And we can, for example, Algeria can use the experience of Morocco in this field to help uh, like the, the, the terrorist attacks on Southern Algeria. Uh, Libya can also like use this, this uh, police system uh, in order to collect information and all that stuff. I think, I think that's, that's the type of cooperation that we need between African countries. Okay, and then then to add on what you said about external influence, I will try and verify this. And if I do, I will post the link in the description of the podcast. Whereby I saw that Western powers were trying 
to set up a bank in Libya. In the middle of a war zone, your priority is setting up a bank in Libya. So that also speaks volumes. I mean, uh, so the construction of a central bank in Libya is necessary, is very necessary. Because like the Libya, as we know, uh, and nine, after nine years of civil war, uh, I think it's yeah, like one of the most, the, the necessary components of a state is having a central bank. And like the the city where the central bank needs the, like to be to be constructed is in Sirte, and Sirte is between two major cities, the two major cities of Libya, uh, Benghazi and Tripoli. So yeah, this this city, uh, there have been war in the city, but in the same time they want to create some some kind of a Washington DC for Libya. So this city would be like the, it has never been a capital. It's not part of the west or the east. And like it's in the middle, I think that's why they have suggested uh, building a central bank on, on, on this city. What I think should be done is that its construction, its functioning and its operations all should be led by Libyan people. Like mistakes of the Berlin conference, mistakes of the Paris conference or the Moscow conference should not be repeated. Foreigners should not intervene in the Libyan affairs. I think, yeah, for, for 10 years, at least like that's like the most lesson that one can learn from from the libyan example okay. is that foreigners should not intervene in libyan affairs okay. then as we wrap up on terrorism to speak about freedom of religion then rehabilitation because we see that to be honest most terrorist organizations gain their ideology from an extremist view of Islam. Personally, I've never heard of, say, a Christian terrorist organization or a Buddhist terrorist organization, but it is worth noting all religions, or at least all major religions, have been used to further violence, whether it was the Christian crusades in Europe or what we see today in India of Hindus attacking Muslims or in Myanmar of Buddhists attacking the Rohingya Muslims. So all religions have been used to further violence, but personally I've never seen of another religion apart from Islam being used to further a terrorist organization. Why do you think sure. this is so? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, just first, I don't think that, uh, I, mean, I mean, there are there are other terrorist groups that are not uh, Islamist groups. One of them uh, that that is that exists on the African continent is, uh, I believe, the uh, I think its name is the Lord's Resistance Army. I think it's a Christian in, uh, terrorist group. That is Central yeah, African in, Republic. Central, yeah, 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 in Central African Republic in DRC. I think it also operates in South Sudan. So yeah, I think yeah, it, I think religion it doesn't matter uh, doesn't matter in for, for terrorist groups. I think okay. what matters is the extremist touch. Okay. So yeah, I would like I would like to yeah to talk from the beginning from the freedom of religion. And personally, I believe that religion is a matter between the individual and their God. Okay. The issue with extremists is that they want to tell you what's the right way to follow or what's the right religion to follow. 
for example, if I am a Muslim, I'm not telling you Akwacho to follow Islam because mm-hmm. it's the good religion for you. Yeah. If I was an Islamist, I would have told you, you know, Akwacho, you should. Uh, are you a Christian, Akwacho? Yes, I am. Yeah. If I was an Islamist, I would I would have told you, you know, Christianity is is not the right religion. Islam is the right religion. Islam is the right religion for all the people. I think yeah, that's that's the issue with Islamists is that they are trying to tell other people what to do. Mm-hmm. When in fact, being a Muslim is just a personal relationship between me and my God. Yeah. I think that's how I I measure my like uh, it's not it's not measuring, but just like how I know that I'm I'm, I'm truly a Muslim. Uh-huh. And that's that's I think I believe that's the same issue with 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 the, the Lord's Resistance Army. Uh-huh. They're trying to tell people that Christianity is the right is the right religion to follow. Uh-huh. I think that idea of telling someone else what to do or what to follow or what to think uh-huh. is a terrorist act in itself. We see also that this also impacts freedom of religion, stuff like governments arresting sheikhs or closing down mosques or even to the most extreme I've seen in, in Singapore whereby the government approves religious teachers in mosques such that the government controls religion somewhat. What's your view on this? Hey, uh, yeah, I, I think that's trying to manipulate the people who are Muslim or trying to control uh, Islam and everything and people who are Muslim. I think that's what China is doing with the Uyghur Muslims. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're like supervising all the, all, like all the Muslim people and uh, like monitoring all their activities throughout the day. Uh, I believe like a friend told me that if people want, you know, in Islam, we have this uh, uh, communal uh, prayer, like all the, all the people pray in one time uh, at the same place. And it's not allowed in, in most of China. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, like few people do it in secret in China, and that's what's also France is trying to do. With uh, I think they introduced a new law where they where any Muslim kid would uh, register their name like uh, in school, they would register their name and their religion and everything, just like to uh, monitor their activities throughout the day, what they are doing and everything. Because the issue of culture is that we, one cannot see the difference between an Islamist or a terrorist uh, Muslim yeah. uh, and a simple Muslim. Like the difference cannot be seen, and the, the solution that I think is sustainable, because no matter how you can how a state control, it cannot control perfectly one hundred percent everything. There must be some loopholes. We all agree to that. I think the the solution is to educate people, mm-hmm. like do some anti radicalization campaigns, uh, try to touch people who are affected by this by this by this issue. Like try to find the root cause and the root place where everything starts, where, the, where most of the recruitments happen. Mm-hmm. And there are some countries who have had this experience, and we can learn from those uh, those experience of those countries. And yeah, that's the solution: educate people, not control people. Have you personally ever felt targeted of your faith? I mean, there have been some inst- uh, instances, but uh, I think it wasn't something very serious. Okay. I mean, some like a lot of people around the world. We know that a lot of people around the world have a wrong perception of Islam based mm-hmm. on their experience, and I do not blame them. Blame mm-hmm. them. I'm just saying that I, I believe that the right way to perceive religion as a personal matter between the individual and the God. I think yeah, that's the only way so that all religions can be practiced in peaceful and harmony. On 
rehabilitation how would we go about rehabilitating my terrorists so, or yeah. can they so, even be rehabilitated but i guess that's sort of like more of a philosophical question yeah it's a more philosophical question and i i think that i'm not the right person to answer that question honestly but what i can say is that mm-hmm. uh, the mistake that have been done is that uh, terrorists ex for like former former terrorists uh, terrorists are put in prisons are imprisoned and they own their hatred for the state their hatred for anything that comes from that state only grows Mm-hmm. And once they go out, they become more like they commit more terrorist attacks. Instead, there should be, like, like we said, rehabilitation centers just for ex-terrorists. Mm-hmm. And like they would have to follow like a long period psychological and sociological also help mm-hmm. uh, overcoming and overcome. Yeah, evaluation. And uh, mm-hmm. that will help, help them in overcoming what pushed them. Mm-hmm. To, to join that terrorist group or to commit that terrorist act. Moving on to our second topic of the day of youth participation in African politics. Could you explain to us how the youth can participate more in politics within Africa? Because the median age in Africa is... 19 years old so both you and me are 19 so we are the average african in terms of age but we see most of our presidents are just really old people like in their 60s 70s 80s people who cling on to power till death do them apart so how can the youth participate more in politics and get what they want out of their governments uh, just, just yeah. Uh, I think it's important to mention that uh, what we mean by youth participating in politics is that young people take part of the decision-making uh, process that affects their lives. Because every decision that's taken by the government affects our our, our lives. Mm-hmm. And why we say that young people are the, like the specific uh, class of the society that should focus on on that should. Uh, uh, participate in the politics because the large, cl- the largest class of I think most of African populations, African countries' populations is 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 youth, young people mm-hmm. between eighteen and uh, thirty five. So yeah, I think we all agree on on the importance of uh, the political participation of youth. Then we move on how can young people politically participate? I think uh, we should we should draw the difference between two main types of political participation. Uh, I think number one is formal political participation, mainly in the forms of uh, voting in the elections, voting in referendums, um, participating in young youth wings of political parties, or even electing themselves as uh, members of parliament. Uh, that's formal political participation. I think informal political participation, that a lot of young people are now uh, common with is uh, what we see on social media, uh, political dialogues, mm-hmm. uh, sit-ins, protests, demonstrations. All those activities are political pers- are an informal way of political participation of young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so yeah, these, these are the two types of political participation. How the question of how can we improve? Uh, I believe, yeah, that's the question you asked, Mahakusha, right? Yeah. How we, how we can improve uh, the youth political participation? Yeah. I think number one is to give more opportunities to them. Uh, by giving more opportunities, I mean that young people are allowed to vote, for example. In some countries, uh, I don't know about Kenya, but for Morocco, uh, the voting age starts with 18 years old. Is, is yeah. it the same in Kenya? Yeah, also here it's 18. Yeah, a, a lot of countries have different ages for people to vote or to run for member parliament uh, positions. I think, yeah, that's, that's the number one issue, giving more opportunities. The, the number two issue is, I think, is a mistake done by most young people is that they do not trust uh, politics or they are not interested in politics. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who goes by the name Olemo, he studies with me at the African Leadership Academy. He once told me that if you are not interested in politics, politics will have its interest in you. So political will, will be interested in you. I think that, that, that explains it all. Because the decisions that are made by political leaders, whether on a micro level or a macro level, mm. I think they all affect our daily lives. Like from transportation to the education, to, like, to the national curriculum that we study at schools, mm. to the prices of potatoes and tomatoes in, in the street market. I think everything is uh, decided by those political leaders. And if something just affects my daily life, how can I not be interested in it? Mm. I mean, that's that's the number one priority that I should focus on. Mm -hmm. uh, not not say, I'm not saying that we all should be politicians, but I think we all should be <laughs> politicized. Okay. okay, that's the right word. Politicized, okay. understanding oh, politics, and no conscious. One... Yeah, yeah, being politically conscious. I think yeah, that's another word for it. Mm. Uh, yeah, answering also the same question about the effectiveness of youth in political participation. I think besides giving more opportunities and people not losing their trust in, in politics and, and their interests also, mm. I think what we can add. Yeah. Uh, and specifically, yeah. what you had said on informal participation on online, I see many people criticize what you call online political participation. They call it clicktivism, whereby it's online activism that in the end doesn't really do anything uh, that is debatable. Because this year alone, in 2020, we've seen several movements online. We've seen... Black Lives Matter, we have seen NSARS in Nigeria, we've seen Zimbabwe Lives Matter in Zimbabwe, even here in Kenya there was coal ni sumu, which is Swahili for coal is poison. It was a push to, to prevent a coal power plant being built in Lamu along the Kenyan coast, which was also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So, and they succeeded by the way. So what's your view on what people call clicktivism and is it of, and of what value is it? Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think your answer to the question for like people who, who say to like that, that 
uh, online political participation is not really a political participation. I mean, they, they, they can see the Zimbabwean Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. But it's all started with, uh, with online activism. People mm-hmm. sharing posts and resharing posts. People like raise awareness about certain issues that Zimbabweans uh, face. And how, that's how the movement started. Also, you gave the SARS uh, movement example. Uh, another example is, uh, I think, the Arabs. A lot of people, yeah, the Arab, yeah, that's yeah, that's what I wanted to to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, more specifically, not the Arab Spring, but more specifically, the 20 February movement in Morocco. Mm-hmm. It all started with a Facebook post. Then it got reshared, reshared, reshared again and again. Most people knew about it. And everyone on that post, like on the comments, said that we will meet on the 20 February uh, in the streets of the capital, and we will all protest. Then from 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 the capital, it moved to all like all major cities in Morocco. I think online participation has its uh, own place in political participation. And what were those protests about? Uh, those protests were part of what's called the Arab Spring, even though I don't like the the name. Could you tell us how our politi- our leadership can then reflect our values and our aspirations as a people? Uh, I think that like what our leadership needs to reflect on is the revolutionary thought that we all should have. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like this revolutionary thought, the, why I like it is because it pushes pushes for change every time. So, for example, let's say. We, adv- we advocate for more pol- youth political participation. Let's say we have a young prime minister. And like it would be better if like all the, the, the mindset of, of people is, is led by this revolutionary thought that I should not rebel or, or just I should disagree with what our predecessor, my predecessor came with and such on a new thing, such, such a new change, such a new, a new uh, plan of action and everything else. I think yeah, that's that's what we should reflect. Uh, leadership, our leadership mainly reflects on, which is the revolutionary thoughts. Okay, then to wrap up, we shall touch on civic education and the Arab Spring. You've already mentioned you don't like the term Arab Spring. No. Could you tell us why? And also. Could you tell us your experience as a North African seeing the various countries around Morocco experience what we shall loosely term revolution such as Algeria, Tunisia and yeah. Libya and how Morocco avoided sure. let's say the worst aspects of the Arab yeah. Spring. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, I think by the way it's important to note out that uh, in the same day, in the 17th of December on 2010, uh, the Arab, the so-called Arab Spring started. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, just let's just commemorate that, that, that event. So why I don't I don't like the, the name Arab Spring is because it has been named by a U.S. political analyst. It was not named by the people who led that revolution or revolutions. But she was named by a U.S. political analyst. She said that the, like the perfect name is the Arab Spring, referring to uh, earlier revolutions on the Arab world, specifically in the Middle East, uh, that happened in the 19th century. Uh, the other, the other like naming that the Tunisians, like where the, the this whole movement started, they named it the Jasmine Revolution. 
I think, yeah, that's that's what the right name should be. So Jasmine Revolution started in, in Tunisia. It then moved to Libya, Egypt, uh, Algeria, Morocco. And it's true, yeah, it, it, it moved to other other uh, Middle Eastern or other Arab countries. Not not, not Arab countries, because technically... Uh, Arab majority countries? No, 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 no. Uh, just like, just through, yeah. I think technically North African countries are not Arab countries, except uh, Egypt. Okay. Let me explain. Uh, for a country to be an Arab country, it should be stated in its constitution. And Algeria, uh, Morocco, uh, Tunisia, and Libya do not have uh, that name on their constitutions. Like it's not stated as the Arab Kingdom of Morocco or the Arab Republic of Libya or the Arab Re Republic of Tunisia. It's only uh, Egypt that's named the Arab Republic of Egypt. Um, so, do I, like, do we call North African countries Arab? Is that because they are part of the Arab League? And the Arab League is an organization that that's its main its main mission mm -hmm. is to decolonize or the fight uh, European colonialism in in the Arab world and, or in countries that speak uh, Arabic. So. So in your view, is being Arab, say, is it, is it, is it like you said, the people state it in the constitution, which is a form of declaration, or what is it? By the way, I think the true Arab people, like the true Arab people can be found in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in United Arab Emirates, in Qatar. Those are the people that speak true Arabic, like the, the true language, and uh, those are like the people who have like the the, the true uh, Arabic uh, values or cultural cultural values. Yeah, uh, North African countries or uh, countries like such as Iran, Syria, Lebanon, those are not mainly Arab countries because they have other cultures, <clears throat> part of part of the national identity. I mean, we do speak Arabic, but it's not, it's not a, that is the same spoken in, in other Arab countries. For example, if I talk my Moroccan Arabic with another guy from, let's say, Saudi Arabia, we cannot communicate together. I mean, we would understand some words, but the we cannot dialects. communicate perfectly together. Yeah, the there are different dialects. Okay. Yeah, yeah, are really different. Like we have some words from Amazigh languages, from Spanish, from Persian languages, from, Ottoman, from Turkish languages, like it's just a myriad of of languages put together. Okay. But we we can talk about it, about like this whole North African identity issue in in another episode. Yeah. Okay. Then, how did to wrap up? How did Morocco avoid the worst of the Arab Spring, and how can we? civic education amongst the youth yeah yeah so for the first question uh, morocco has of uh, what has what has happened in other in other countries in other north african countries by changing the constitution by amending the constitution so the last amendment of the moroccan constitution happened in 1999 and the next one would be would happen in 1912 uh 20, 2011 uh so yeah, right after the, the 20 February protests that I have just talked about, right after them, the main, the main things that the people demanded are freedom, respect, and dignity. 
living better lives. And that's what the, the constitution, like that's what was amended in the constitutions. Articles concerning polit political freedom or freedom of expression. Uh, for example, the king uh, was a sacred person in the, in the kingdom. And after that amendment, the king was no longer a sacred person. Yet criticizing him or any person or any member of the royal family uh, will be punished uh, accordingly. Uh, other amendments uh, have have aimed, yeah, the freedom of expression and also freedom of uh, owning businesses, uh, helping or assisting enterprises, young entrepreneurs, and everything else. I think yeah, that's how Morocco has uh, avoided uh, what has happened in other countries. Mm -hmm. The second, the second part of the question, which is the civic education. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what we mean by civic or, or how I see civic or political education is that we will not teach people about, about politics or about like uh, understanding political theories or social theories. But what we will teach people is the basic political knowledge that they should understand, mm -hmm. namely, uh, how does the parliament function or how does referendums uh, should go or how elections are organized. Uh, how to make research about each political parties and, and understand their agendas. I think those those yeah are what uh, those skills are what need to be uh, taught in civic education. Okay.